You ready? Uh, no. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> Now, now are you ready? I'm, now I'm ready. <laughs> Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, this week, Marlene, we talk with a friend of ours, April Rousseau, from Clifford Chance's Research and Development Hub in London. So I find it really exciting that a law firm would actually have a dedicated R&D function. And April talks to us about the three horizons strategy that they're taking on at the R&D hub from transforming the core of their operations to complementing services and business assets at the firm. And my favorite of looking at the future of legal services and staying ahead of the disruption curve. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, our favorite thing that we learned was what a hippo was inside a firm. So uh, you'll have to just kind of hang on for that one. So, but it was it was great catching up with April. Yes, it was. And so stick around to find out what a hippo is inside a law firm. But now let's get to this week's information inspirations. So Marlene, my first inspiration is a self-published commentary that Bill Gerdner of Courthouse News did, which asked New Mexico courts to give back public access. One might think that electronic court filings would help kind of speed up the process of getting information out to the community, but one would be wrong (laughs) in New Mexico's case, according to Gerdner. Okay. Yeah, so he says that in the old days before electronic filing, the press, which included CNS's staff, would be allowed to access the documents filed at the courts right after the clerk had accepted the documents. So they would like literally like pass it over the counter and they would have two stacks. They would have the process stack and the getting ready to process stack and the uh, apparently the press were allowed to look at the uh, the new filings. Mm-hmm. However, the courts there are now waiting until the documents have actually been entered into the docketing system, which usually means a delay, probably about a day, according to this article. And CNS is bringing a First Amendment case to restore the old model of allowing reporters to see the documents as soon as the uh, clerk's office accepts them. Just to have full disclosure here, my firm is actually representing CNS in this matter. So this is not CNS's first time to sue the court uh, courts for access. They've actually brought cases in Maine, Vermont, Oregon, Idaho, Missouri, Ohio, and Texas as well. And while Bill Gertner's article is written from obviously his point of view on press access to the filings. There's a lot of good points here on the importance of accessing filings by the press in order to inform the public of current legal actions, which are very newsworthy. So when's the last time you heard a constitutional argument around the Third Amendment? Um, I'm thinking back in college. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I know, like the First and Second Amendment get a lot more exposure, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the Third Amendment Lawyers Association, who knew there was even such a thing, That's filed, crazy. <laughs> yes, filed an amicus brief claiming the CDC eviction moratorium forces landlords to quarter soldiers. Pause. Okay. Pausing. All right. <laughs> the argument is that given the size of the population, some of the tenants are bound to be soldiers. And this violates the Third Amendment, which prohibits quartering soldiers in times of peace. Mm. 
Well, Law Twitter has been having a field day with this, as you can imagine. So if you hashtag Third Amendment and you can see some of the responses, some are funny and some are serious. So here's here's one I like, which is, I guess, a little bit of both. The Third Amendment says that without the owner's consent, a landlord who is leased to a soldier has already given consent. They're just trying to revoke it. And the Third Amendment does not prohibit all limitations on an owner's ability to revoke consent after it has been given. Where are my textualists at? (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to see the actual brief, I put the link in the show notes. Oh, my goodness. Well, something I thought I would never hear. Hashtag Third Amendment. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Everybody was was commenting about about the creativity of JDs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, if you look hard enough, there's there's an association for everything. That's true. (laughs) Well, my second inspiration is about the new first edition of the Introduction of Law Librarianship. And this book is out and it is crazy amazing. Awesome. So editors Zanata Joyner and Cass Laskowski, along with a diverse group of law librarians, bring this first open access ebook to focus completely on the law library profession. And you may remember Cass was one of our very first, I think she was actually on the third episode. She was like second or third, yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was early. So the book covers the philosophy behind a career that bridges the two professions of legal and libraries. And it addresses the questions that many consider when, you know, considering law librarianship as a career, you know, such as, do I need a law degree? What's the type of library? that are out there? What specialization, if any, do I need to take on? And a lot more. And it looks at the academic, the government, and the private areas of law librarianship. It covers marketing and the outreach of the profession. And again, my favorite, the future of the profession. So the book is free to download and use. The chapters are written by those of us in the profession who actually are doing the work. <laughs> and I applaud their commitment for you know, just making this book happen. So I've placed a link on the show notes where you can go and download the book. That is super cool. That is really good. I'd like to, I can't wait to take a look at that. So here's another burning question (laughs) from Twitter. (laughs) Should legal tech be tested on the bar exam? Well, some people think so, but there seem to be some cons as well as pros. Well, tech is a large part of the life of an attorney, and in the words of retired U.S. magistrate judge and Georgetown adjunct professor of law, John M. Fasciola, not testing a gigantic part of a lawyer's life seems strange. Our very own geek, Casey Flaherty, notes that it would be hard for examiners and questioners to keep up with technological advancements. And I think the guy on Twitter that said, no, you can believe that, (laughs) would agree here. (laughs) And let's not consider how we would test tech knowledge. Would it be multiple choice or hands-on? Some are saying CLE is the right course, but if you've never taken a CLE, I can assure you, you are not going to learn technology that way. (laughs) I think certification sounds like a good option though, but whatever your position, if you want to catch the Twitter chat on this, search on hashtag legal tech and hashtag bar exam. Yeah, that's interesting. I I just can't wrap my mind around how you would test that on, on, on a bar exam. Yeah, I, I, that's a lot of thought that would need to go into how that would work. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wraps up this week's Information Inspiration. Today's guest 
Ross understands that success isn't just about talking about innovation, but rather about delivering value to the law firm and its clients. Whether it is iterative improvements on the core business practices, continual improvements and adjustments over time, or anticipating, understanding, and adapting to disruptions in the future, innovation is a constant process and not just a side gig. We would like to welcome April Brousseau, Director of Research and Development at Clifford Chance in London. April, welcome to the Geek in Review. Thanks, Greg. Nice to be here. So, April, we've all known one another for a while, but please tell our listeners about your professional journey and how it's prepared you for your current role over at Clifford Chance's R&D Hub. Thanks, Marlene. So, yeah, I've had a bit of a roundabout journey. I've had about every job there is that isn't just being a lawyer. So, um, we like I, we like roundabout journeys. Yeah. So that's good. I started out as a librarian. So um, before I qualified as a librarian, I worked in libraries all through university and was really passionate about librarianship, but also thought maybe I wanted to be a lawyer mostly because I worked with lawyers in a law library and wanted to prove to them that I could do what they did. So wrote the LSAT <laughs> and then <laughs> suddenly ended up at law school. And, you know, after my first year, I still really wanted, I was still really passionate about librarianship and I was working in the library. So I converted my law degree to a combined master's of library science together with law. And I did that and then wasn't sure still what I wanted to be when I grew up, um, when I left. Bosh, the pressure of law school to get called to the bar, you know, you sort of feel it. So I did I did article and ended up doing litigation. I thought I was going to be a research lawyer um, and stay. I'm actually quite introverted and I thought I'll just be in the stacks researching people's memos. Uh, and then it turns out I actually really like to argue um, more <laughs> like – it's more that I really like to win, and it was the one job I ever had where, like, somebody's wrong and I'm right, and, you know, I get paid for that. So mm. I did that for a few years, but, you know, like, being a lawyer has a lot of – it requires a lot of sacrifice, and I didn't really know that the balance was right for me. And the firm that I had actually been working in the library at before law school called me up and said, have you heard of knowledge management? Like, do you know what that is? Because – We've got a, a knowledge management team we're setting up, and would you like to come and join it? And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that, and that was at Stakeman Elliott in Toronto, and I did that for about four years. Then uh, Norton Rose Fulbright in the UK um, had a job for one year. It was meant to be a one-year contract to come across and help them implement search um, everyone's favorite. Um, and I'm quite, <laughs> yeah, everyone yeah. loves the global search project. Yeah. Enterprise search is the <gasps> thing that keeps no one up at night. <laughs> um, and taxonomies, right? And I actually am a, mm-hmm. like oddly obsessed with taxonomy. And so it was kind of like a dream job. Um, so yeah, I moved to London for a year. I sold my car, you know, rented my house in Toronto out. And uh, seven years later, I'm still here. After finishing Enterprise Search, that project, I actually uh, moved into information architecture for a few years, and that was kind of trying to bring together a lot of the skills from librarianship together with the legal background and some sort of, you know, some of the business skills I'd learned along the way. Turns out I hated that. (laughs) It was a little bit too in the detail for me. And so I was like, what can I do with this random skill set that I have? And I moved to another firm 
Simmons and Simmons where I was the head of innovation and new business. And in that role, I was kind of like using my different skills to build digital products to sell to clients. Yeah, I actually really liked that. That was really cool. I didn't love the sales part so much. Turns out, yeah, not the best salesperson, but I liked engaging with clients and I liked solving problems and it was really interesting and I learned a lot. And then again was sort of like, do I want to do this forever? Who do I want to be when I grow up? Mm-hmm. And uh, Clifford Chance called and said, you know, we've got this new function. We call it Create. And it is, you know, research into the future of legal services. And it was a, quite an open job description. And to be fair, I didn't really understand it at the time. But I was like, whatever, I'll give it a yeah. shot. <laughs> it's, it's probably okay. They probably didn't understand what they wanted either. So Sometimes those yeah. are the best ones, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I, I will say this, like Clifford Chance is a really open firm in terms of their mentality and the way that they think about innovation. And they'd been investing in it for a really long time. And so, you know, they kind of were like, it is a bit of a blank page for you. And, you know, where do you want to take this? And it's now a year and two months later, and I'm the director of research and development at Clifford Chance, which is cool. Possibly my dream job, but we'll see. <laughs> good, good. So you've been in, in the R&D hub since May. So just tell us a, a little bit, how did this idea of a research and development lab come to be? You know, it's one thing to think about it. It's another thing to make it a reality. So how did you and the firm come together and make it a reality? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting story. Like the firm's quite iterative, like I said, and flexible in their approach. And so... They started their innovation journey probably about 10 years ago, but at that time it was really focused on operational improvements. So it was continuous improvement, legal project management, and internally we call that best delivery. So that function's been around for almost a decade, and it's over 180 professionals strong all over the world, legal project managers, resource managers, delivery centers, um, legal technology advisors. And then in 2018, they said, you know what, we want to spin out a separate business unit to build and sell digital products to clients. And they called that Clifford Chance Applied Solutions. And then they created the the third pillar, which I was working in, which was called Create. When I joined, you know, one of the things I quickly noticed was that because of the way the function had developed, some things were a little bit siloed. So there were some missed opportunities and there was some talent, you know, across the firm that maybe wasn't being utilized, you know, to its greatest potential because it was in one team in one region and they didn't necessarily know what another person in another region was doing. And so we sort of sat back and said, maybe it's time for a refresh of the strategy. And we looked at who was doing what and realized that everybody was kind of trying to build these digital solutions. And it was difficult to do when you sometimes are doing it alongside your day job or with priorities from a local client local practice area and we thought it would be much more effective to scale it by moving the sort of build capability out of that applied solutions entity back into the firm which I mean I will say you know in retrospect was pretty bold Um, most firms are currently spinning their research their development capability out and we actually spun it back in but we actually looked at the McKinsey model and, you know, with McKinsey's digital business and they, they did something similar. We just thought it would work better this way because it allows us, and I have to find a better way to describe it, but almost become like the engine room 
to really effectively execute things from start to finish. We kept our applied solutions entity because it's still relevant to the market, customer care, sales, marketing of our digital solutions. But this research and development function is meant to really sort of harness our capabilities that were spread out before. The research part is the interesting one, and that was kind of one of my babies in a way, because you can't develop effectively without a strong research capability. Maybe that's the librarian in me. I don't know. but um, And the firm, and I, I sort of thought about what they had said to me in my initial interview, that they're really committed to leading from the future, not leading for the future. And so they're committed to research into what disruption might look like, not two years down the line, but 15 years down the line. And, you know, how can we not just be prepared to react, but how do we lead that? And the only way to do that is to really uncover some of our blind spots because we don't know what we don't know. Compared to some of the other places I've worked, it wasn't hard, you know, to convince anybody. It uh, was a couple of, you know, I think meetings and some analysis of some data. And they just said, yeah, we're willing to invest in this. The great thing is that they're willing to invest in it, but they're also willing to iterate it. So they're quite, in terms of sort of the firm and its style, they do really appreciate the ability to fail fast or succeed fast, right? They know that sometimes things take a long time, but if you don't try, you won't learn. So lessons learned are helpful. So what I'm hearing, and and tell me if I'm wrong here, is that if you're going to do uh, an R&D lab like this, it can't be a side gig. It has to be a a focus for that department to to work on that. Am I right on that? Yeah, that's right. Like everybody does research, right? On the side of their desks, everybody is reading all the news articles, but without sort of a dedicated capability, like focused on it, It's like all things, you know, I'm a firm believer that lawyers don't make good coders, right? The same way coders don't make good lawyers. I think it's important to have a breadth of skills across your team, but specialisms are really important. And I'm sure you guys have seen this as well as lots of people think they're good at research until they see a researcher or a librarian do research. Right, right. That's Um, true. And the second thing is uh, you previously said that you hate uh, selling the products that you develop. Are you going to have to do that here as well? No, because we have our Clifford Chance Applied Solutions entity still, and it's um, got a fully stocked, well-equipped sales and marketing team who are much better at it than me. (laughs) Sounds like a (laughs) win-win. Yeah, and we work really closely with the best delivery team too, right? Because they're the ones who are sort of doing the matters day-to-day with the lawyers. So we're responsible in the R&D hub for developing not just digital solutions for the clients, but also for the lawyers to improve productivity. We're not like a shadow IT team, so we don't do, you know, the business improvements like, you know, enterprise search, SharePoint. We leave those to the experts, like our knowledge teams. But if it comes down to like using technology to be a better lawyer and deliver your legal services in a better way, that's with us. So April, I heard you say on Legito Legal Disruptors that firms must have a strategy in terms of innovation. Now, this can be challenging in a multi-practice firm with demanding clients. Uh, you know, how have you approached setting a strategy? I mean, it's a really good question because we've just actually refreshed the strategy. And we looked at a couple of different things, but we're primarily focused on 
the Three Horizon model. So we've taken sort of a version of the McKinsey Three Horizon model that Gartner then, you know, adapted, and we've adapted a bit ourselves. And we are looking at specific client sectors and work types, but we're looking at them in the context of Three Horizons. So in the first horizon, our strategy is about transforming the core and how much we're going to invest our resources in transforming our core work types. So Clifford Chance has a really clear client strategy. We know what kind of work that we want to do and the clients that we're looking at. And so our innovation strategy has to support that. So it helps us really know which client sectors we should be focusing on and which ones we aren't focusing on. And that's for the core delivery of legal services. The second horizon is about complementary services in business areas that complement the core, which the core is legal advice. So this is the digital solutions we build to sell to clients. And in that context, it is also driven by our client strategy of the firm. So for example, let's just say, and I should be careful about this, but you know, we don't do personal injury law in any sort of, but imagine that somebody came to me and said, I've got a great idea for like a personal injury product that we could sell with lots of clients. You know, that wouldn't be aligned to our core practice areas. And we would say, no, thank you very much. So we really always tie it back to what I call viability. So it's a combination of desirability, viability, and feasibility. But from a viability perspective is, does it align to the firm's core objectives? And each of our practices have their own strategy, their own sort of metrics, and we're helping them to deliver on those. And then Horizon 3, where we also invest, is around that future of legal services and the, you know, what ifs. But again, we do tie it back to our core product, which is legal advice, and our core client and work type base. Um, we do, you know, sometimes get questions or ideas generated that aren't directly related to us um, or the work that we do. And in that case, I mean, we say no, but we usually say, can I introduce you to somebody who might be able to help you with that. When I was talking at the Legal Disruptors Conference, I thought it was important to emphasize strategy because you can't do innovation in a vacuum. And I really believe innovation is action and it's not theater if you're doing it right. And therefore, to do it right, you have to have a strategy. Um, like you really need to know what it is you're trying to achieve and you have to keep coming back to that. Otherwise, I mean, you guys know lots of innovation professionals it's sometimes like a cat with a string, right? Like it's this idea, that idea, and it's great to have that creative sensibility and you need that kind of energy, but to harness it, you need to focus it. And so our focus is really aligned to how our firm operates and the, the, the strategy that it has. You make it sound so easy. It's just like, yes, you know, here's the strategy and here are the points and we just follow this. You know, do you, do you ever find it kind of gets murky? Um, you know, your example of, of the personal injury solution. Right now, that is something that it's like, no, we don't do that. Now, 15 years out, maybe that's something that, that you do. So, you know, is that something that's taken into account? Using that example, if it's someone who's coming to you that's, you know, a very powerful person in the firm and, you know, saying, you know, I really think we should do this. Are they in line with, you know, hearing the the no and, you know, being able to sort of understand what, you know, what the overall strategy is and how that doesn't fit. Yeah. So um, in answer to your first question, um, we review that strategy every quarter. 
because it can quickly become redundant. Um, you need to sort of stay, you know, things shift. Um, you know, I could, I could identify tomorrow a potential technology application which could fundamentally disrupt a practice area. And maybe that practice area wasn't on my original agenda but is core to us. We would need to shift. We need to pivot. And so to do that quickly, we have to keep going back to that strategy and updating it and revising it. And we do that across the whole innovation program. Uh, Bass Boris Visser is our global head of innovation and business change. Um, and he is he leads the whole innovation program. And he's really he's really in touch with our clients. He's close to the partnership. He is a partner and was the managing partner of one of our offices. And so he's also constantly coming back to our strategy, aligning it to the firm's practices and the shift, you know, that our clients have in their needs. With respect to the second question, you're referring to what I call the hippo, um, the highest paid person's opinion. Um, <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm taking that down in my notes. <laughs> All right, we're stealing that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they um, – of course, there are hippos in all law firms, and yep. um, I will say it has been a, a blessing here to uh, to not work in a Swiss Verein. So Swiss Vereins have a lot more hippos, um, but Clifford Chance isn't a Verein, and so there is um, a governance structure that we have. So currently, the way the governance works is all initial ideas get triaged by the R&D hub and we assess it really quickly and we can say no, but usually what we do is we, we refer it for more exploration and then we build almost like a rationale to say yes or no or to dig deeper into what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve and should we be the ones to solve it. I have not yet experienced any partner, lawyer, or professional at Clifford Chance who doesn't appreciate a rational explanation, um, highest paid opinion or not. And they're like all people. You know, you can say no to someone if you explain why you're saying no to them. But just saying no, you know, because say things like, no, there's no budget or no, it's not aligned to the strategy. You have to actually kind of explain it in a little bit more detail and sometimes present a viable alternative. But there will always be, you know, senior people whose brother's cousin's neighbor's dog walker has a new piece of technology that, you know, we absolutely have to have. I mean, in a way it's good, right? Because then you get visibility of all of these different things. But having the strategy and a clear governance process to fall back on um, really helps to kind of kick things to the curb that maybe belong on the curb. So, April, you were talking about the hippo with the internal pressures from important people. What about on the opposite side? When uh, you know, what are you hearing from the clients on what they deem? are most important to deliver and are there times where there may be an idea coming in from the client but that doesn't necessarily fit in in your three horizon strategy that that you mentioned before how do you get to say no to a client yeah obviously those are sometimes a bit harder um especially 
I mean, sometimes clients don't necessarily appreciate the investment required to solve some problems, which to them seem like they're really easily solvable. Um, and so it can become a challenging conversation. But again, most clients are pretty rational if you explain to them you know, why this is not what we do. We are not a tech shop. We are not trying to be um, a development house, right? What we are trying to do is to create solutions to problems that make a meaningful difference to our clients. But I hear a lot, for example, clients talking about contract lifecycle management, are we, Clifford Chance, going to go out and build a contract lifecycle management platform? <laughs> no. I mean, all you got to do is Google it and you can see that the market is awash with options. So what we have been doing is focusing on strategic partners, partnerships with um, legal tech and other tech vendors because we recognize that we're not a development house. And so if the, a solution involves the delivery of legal advice and we think that it could be scalable and deliver real value to clients, even if, you know, if one asks for it, what we will do is quickly prototype and we will test it with multiple clients to see if there is a market. And then we will either build or we will buy and build with somebody else. In terms of what I'm hearing on the ground from clients most recently, it's really interesting and this might be unique to the market over here, but open law. So quite a quite a few clients are really focused on the concept of open sourcing. And I think that comes down to what many people have talked about around the integration challenge. So lots of clients have asked for lots of solutions of many people. And as a result, there is, you know, a plethora of point solutions on the market and they are not consolidating fast enough. And they're not dying fast enough either. And so you end up with this sort of toolbox of multiple tools that you have to connect them all together. And clients are facing that challenge, especially some of the bigger ones. And so we've seen quite a bit of focus recently on questions around open sourcing some of the code to embed solutions directly into platforms they already had. And there's lots of, you know, challenges with that. But I think, you know, if you look at things like the open banking standards, I think there is room in law for much more openness um, and that that might resolve also some of the challenges. And, you know, coming back to the original question, but around what do you do when a client, you know, has a request that you can't resolve or you don't want to resolve? What we try to do is rationalize what the real problem is because often they're trying to solve, like it's always a word add-in, right? Like, please, can you get a word add-in to, to my computer? <laughs> And we try, we do, we do what lots of firms do. We do design thinking workshops to really understand what is the problem? What is the job to be done? And is there a way to solve it that maybe doesn't involve technology or doesn't involve us? Maybe it's a people issue. Maybe it's a process issue. But also maybe there is something off the shelf that you could buy from somebody else. We're always scanning the market for emerging tech, um, not just for our own purposes to know what the competitive landscape looks like, but also so we can add value even just by connecting people together. That was actually really the whole open, you know, yeah, open it's pretty crazy. source is, is really quite interesting because um, yeah, I just, there's. Because you can't open source legal advice. I'm, I'm surprised there's not more backlash on that, that, that there's, it's. 
it was really something that people are looking for. Are, are, well, I'm just curious, are there certain open standards that you're working with to expand this? Yeah, well, I mean, we're looking at, we're working with organizations like Sally, mm-hmm. you know, to try to, to do some start there. We've been speaking with some of like the SRA, for example. They should be putting out a report shortly, if not soon. Um, LawTech UK is also looking at data and sort of standardization as a key pillar of the work that they're researching. And so what we just want to do is we just want to come around the table with others who are looking at this challenge when it comes to legal advice, obviously there are specific challenges around open sourcing. We can't open source legal advice. But, you know, is it possible to create platforms that using open source code could integrate more effectively into the way that clients work? Yes, I think that that's possible. So you, you've mentioned that you have strong relationships with clients. You have you know, your ear to the ground in order for people to, you know, in order for clients to buy into innovation. But you also mentioned, you know, failing fast as part of the strategy. And you have to have trust in in your vision, right? So how do you do that when, you know, you you do, you know, embrace failing fast and, and when you're actually steps removed from your clients? Yeah, I think that's a good question, Marlene, because, you know, we like the clients are clients of the firm and so the relationships rest with the partners and the lawyers and so really it's their trust and it's the credibility that I need to have with them they have to also believe in the vision and be willing to share that and be able to communicate that effectively to clients we also speak to clients one-to-one but that wouldn't happen but for our partners creating those relationships for us. And the credibility, it comes from, I use prototypes a lot and wireframes a lot. So it's easy to fail fast if you haven't invested a hundred thousand pounds in something, but even, you know, you leveraging prototypes and wireframes with clients um, is such an effective way to demonstrate that you're listening and that you hear them and that you understand their business. Um, It's also a really quick way to determine whether a solution has legs or not and you haven't invested anything. But often what I find is that, you know, when you go to a client and they say, I've got this problem and I need a solution that does X, Y, Z, you dig a a bit deeper, you sort of prototype something up and you take it in and you say, okay, walk me through how you do your job. Where does this fit in? You know, and then they start to realize that, oh, well, no, like I need to do this in this system or this person needs to engage. And then you just start a conversation and from a conversation comes a relationship. So it's not something that's just done overnight. You know, I can give partners cards describing what innovation is, little speaking notes. Um, That's not what's going to build the relationship or the credibility. It's proving oneself that you're hearing them, even if you don't solve their problem. At least listening and understanding what it is, I think, is kind of half the battle. Now, you'd, you'd mentioned earlier about uh, the need for disruptive change um, in speaking on that. And we talk a lot about that with our guest here uh, on the podcast. And so I'm going to I'm actually going to borrow from our, our blog side of, of things uh, from uh, uh, Casey Flaherty, who wrote something last week. And uh, so. 
are you talking about, are these kind of these moonshot products that are projects that you're working on, or are you looking at improvements and incremental change? Yeah, so coming back to the horizons, like horizon one is all about sort of incremental operational improvement and making lawyers more effective. There's no moonshots in there. Um, It is consistent ongoing application of people, process, and technology to the way that our lawyers deliver legal services. And I would say that, you know, if you look at the overall innovation function, the bulk of our investment has been in that space, which is, I think, pretty consistent. And I think the right thing. Um, The second horizon is around the complementary services. Could some of those be moonshots? Possibly. But the moonshots are really in horizon three. Like, that's where we see the disruption. And we're not looking to be the disruptor necessarily. We're looking to identify the opportunities where disruption is needed and then help to bring people to the table who should maybe be the disruptors. It's possible that we could be the disruptor. You know, I always give people, so when I'm explaining these three horizons, I give them the whole like Apple computer example, right? Like Apple still builds really good computers and they're going to keep building really good computers and I'm going to still buy really good computers from them. And that's all horizon one. That's all core. That's just operational improvements on their existing product. Complementary services, iTunes, iBooks. Yeah, I use all of those things too. You know, the iPhone, the iPod, that was all Horizon 3 at one point. And when you think about Horizon 3 in the context of professional services, it's really difficult to imagine what might exist in there. You know, you might have said 10, 15 years ago that ALSPs were in Horizon 3, but they're not anymore. And so I don't, I mean, I have some, I do think the open law and the open sourcing concept could potentially be a, a significant disruptor. I also see, you know, some potential disruption around some other concepts around standardizing language and digitization and of negotiation. Sorry. One of the things I'm seeing with you having these three horizons and with horizon three being this long-term outlook on things, um, it's almost like the the boiling of the of the frog. You know, it's a you're you're not causing or you're looking far out enough that when the disruption hits, it's not like a shock to the system. Is that is that kind of what I'm I'm hearing on on the yeah, third I mean, horizon? Yeah, in a in a way, I mean, what we're trying to do is not have to react to the disruption. We want to see that it's coming and we want to be part of it, right? Like we want to be part of the solution rather than having to react to it. Um, What we aren't doing is going out and seeking to disrupt, but we are just really conscious of what could disrupt us and unblinding the blind spots is how I refer to it and just keeping everybody, you know, really informed about the art of the possible and how we might actually lead that. So lead from the future is how I always sort of, whenever I write it, people are always like, oh, you made a typo. You mean lead for the future? And I don't. (laughs) Like, I really don't. I mean, like, what is the art of the possible? And what would we need to do to be part of that conversation and to help shape, shape that? I really like that, the art of the possible. Um, You know, how do you actually present that to clients or or to attorneys? Yeah, it often ends up in a PowerPoint deck, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yep, so still, you know, not that innovative on that side. Um, We tend to just sort of um, 
we do some thought leadership internally and with clients. We have, um, I work with, you know, a genius is probably the best way to describe him. His name is Anthony Vigneron and he's our director of legal technology solutions. And he's really, really great at sort of spotting these emerging trends. And he often goes to clients and he just talks to them about it. Um, Yes, often with a PowerPoint deck. And it's not presented as like a this is coming, you know, get your boots on because it's the, you know, you better get ready to run. It is just like a did you know this, you know, you have a blind spot here and so do we. And so we're sharing this information with you so that neither one of us are blind. Um, and it's just it's a knowledge sharing exercise, right? It's just about knowledge sharing and collaboration and it's not even just necessarily for our clients and our lawyers, but there are communities of people, you know, like Legal Geeks, for example, the three geeks, which are more than three. Um, but it's the sharing of information with each other. I think across the industry, we need more collaboration and more openness if we're actually going to move forward as a collective, because we can't really affect change on our own, like not one single firm. So I do think it's important, like organizations like LawTech UK, for example, and some of the work that they're doing to bring communities together, just to have like frank, open conversations. Well, amen to that. I, I agree wholeheartedly. You mentioned earlier, April, uh, that there's situations where, you know, your hub or, or a firm is, is not the right entity to solve a client problem, but you know who can. Uh, have you actually partnered with with those entities to solve a, a problem or you just refer, you know, and if you've partnered, how does that work? Um, I can't say give the details on some of that, but yes, we have. We have and we are looking to partner with some entities. I mean, it's not a secret. We have a very close relationship with Thomson Reuters. Um, so we partner quite effectively with Thomson Reuters and some of the products that they have. But there are also, um, you know, we do connect technology companies together sometimes where we say, you know, you guys have this really great thing, but there is this other thing that is equally great and is just missing this piece. Are you guys friends? Because maybe you should be. We ourselves don't generally like invest in tech companies. That's not what we do. But we look for opportunities where we can propose joint solutions with strategic technology partners. And that is often a joint solution. And the nature of the engagement can be you know, it's, it varies, but we're really good at law. Like we're really good at providing legal advice. And there are some tech companies out there that are really good at providing tech. And when you marry those two together, you, you can just deliver a much more impactful solution. Um, it also means that you have, you know, the full infrastructure of a tech company behind you. If you're a client, you know, you want to know that there is a hundred man team strong supporting this platform. And you want to know that the best lawyers in the business are the ones providing the legal advice through it, with it, to it. So um, the answer is yes, we do partner. Some things I can't talk about, um, but it's something I hope to do a lot more of in the future. Well, April, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that, that I've asked a number of other guests before, and that is I'm going to need you to pull out a crystal ball here and, and make a prediction for us. Um, so what you're doing there at, at Clifford Chance with the R&D Hub, do you 
think that other law firms or even ALSPs are going to follow this example and establish an R&D strategy like, like you have there? Is the market set up to kind of foster this or do you think you're going to be you know, have your own direction that, that you're going? Yeah. Oh, I love unicorns. Um, <laughs> we all uh, love unicorns. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. It's interesting. I, I am. I'm not sure, but we designed the strategy around R and D before we knew about the Law Tech UK report. I will share a link to that. Um, and it's all about the lack of investment in research and development in the legal profession. But we, that wasn't where our mind was at. We were like, what do we need to do for our clients? But the points being made by others now external to us. And so I think it could potentially drive that kind of change within the legal industry. That said, we on this podcast all know the specialism it takes to do research very well. And if I had a crystal ball, I might say that indeed, instead of internally developed functions, we could see new businesses popping up. We, there are already lots of research houses out there, but research houses dedicated to you know emerging markets and the future of technology and legal profession or professional services, it's a specialist talent. And if I was not super happy in my job, which I am, but, you know, I might go and start like this would be a really interesting business opportunity. You outsource it and you basically also then have the ability to leverage knowledge gathered. Um, so, you you know, you do research for one client and another client calls and asks a similar question. You've got this really great knowledge base already built up. It could be a very interesting business opportunity for the three geeks. <laughs> In case this blog thing doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's end on something fun. So um, what are some cool things, April, that you've been working on recently that you can share? Um, well, it's really new. Yes. Yeah, so I've only been in the role since May. So a lot of it has been finding my feet a bit. Um, but what... Um, I can't give some details, but we are partnering um, with a really interesting um, client and tech company on a solution, a set of solutions, depending on, you know, how we pivot it, that could really transform a particular practice area. Not sure I could be any more vague than that. Um, I was going to say, that was handled very well. (laughs) Um, We're also, um, we've been in conversations recently with uh, a group of clients who share a particular challenge. And we have been looking at ways to resolve that challenge with a combination of a technology partner and us as a legal partner and looking at how leveraging some of that open sourcing potentially could resolve that challenge. So 
that is something else that we've been looking at. And then we've also just been doing, you know, some pretty interesting stuff internally. Our data science lab that we have, um, you know, recently did some really interesting work around gender neutralization in all of our documents. Um, That was super cool. And we are looking at ways to, uh, there's a particular process um, that one of our practices does, and it's been very difficult to leverage, you know, something, one of the standard machine learning platforms, because the documents are not similar enough to be able to effectively leverage machine learning. But we've been applying some data science techniques to sort of not trick the system, but to certainly um, uh, perhaps con it in a way. So to make it work. Um, and it's been really, I mean, we've got some really specialist professionals who are, you know, true data scientists. And it's been a journey for us to kind of get, you know, our data lake established. But we're able to do some really interesting things now that um, I, you know, I think that I hope that you will see some really cool stuff coming out from us sooner rather than later. We're looking looking forward to it. So, April Brousseau, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Marlene. Thank you. It's always always good to talk with with April, and you yes. know, I'm I'm really excited about the fact that. Clifford Chance has this department that's dedicated to research and development and isn't somebody's side job. Yeah. You know, because I think there's a lot of firms that that look at R&D, but, you know, it's somebody that works on something as their primary job and R&D is is a a secondary job. So no budget. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or someone else's budget. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Someone else's budget. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I like the way they kind of had three horizons. Mm-hmm. The transforming the core, um, you know, complementary services, and then, then the future of service. And yeah. I also really liked because I know this this is a big challenge. I think is having someone dedicated to basically having their ear on the ground and talking to clients on a regular basis. Because I think, again, like if you don't have a separate group dedicated to this, it's really hard to kind of have that meaningful outreach to clients and really sort of get what you need to, to know on a, on a, on an ongoing basis, uh, in terms of, of how to, how to offer solutions. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course I I think obviously the biggest piece of information that we learned was the hippo of the highest, (laughs) highest paid person's opinion. And, uh, whereas for us, it would be the, 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 the low low po the low po <laughs> or, or at least or at least the mod pro the modestly paid person there you go opinion. mod pros mod pros let's let's be fair exactly okay. exactly so <laughs> thanks again to April Brousseau from uh, Clifford Chance's R and D hub for joining us it was great catching up yeah thanks April it was great to talk to you again so normally we give you a lot of information about how to contact us and how to rate and review us, but we've determined that no one probably listens to this part anyway. So if you like something, tell a friend, tell us, you know where we are. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, tell Jerry you like him too. Yes, please do. <laughs> All right, Marlene, I'll talk with you later. Okay, bye, Greg. Bye.